Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation's true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome back. Thanks. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Jan, George and Lauren. Good morning. Tuesday, 10th of April, and Anya's here. She's looking at us, but she can't talk yet. <laughs> yes, but, she, but she's been in behind the scenes. Um, she was the one who's, who was able to get us an interview with Ahmed, um, which we'll hopefully um, be hearing from. Ahmed Hassan, he is the founder and director of Youth Activating Youth. So we do appreciate Anya um, yeah, contacting him and making that interview happen. Yeah, and you'll be you'll be speaking next week. By next week, yes, cool. She's, yeah, so she's only one week of silence. <laughs> How annoying for you, because cause she, she's not the type to um, sit around oh, and, and, and not say anything. Later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's throwing signs up at us, which is good. So, what do we have in the news? All George? right, yeah, let's jump into some headlines. So, another chemical attack against civilians in Damascus has sparked international condemnation. Over 40 people have been killed and hundreds affected by the gas. Trump has warned there will be a big price to pay for the attack and referred to the Syrian president in a tweet as Animal Assad. France and the UK called for emergency meetings with the Security Council, which was to take place yesterday. Victims of the strike have suffered suffocation, foaming at the mouth, dilated pupils and burned eyes. Mm. Local doctors with limited access to resources have been struggling to treat patients. It's been a year since Trump ordered a strike targeting a Syrian airbase in an attempt to end the chemical warfare being used by the Assad regime. The US president intends to pull out of Syria very soon as efforts have been slowly scaled back. A design for, anti-corruption, for an anti-corruption commission has been released by a panel of legal experts. The proposed commission would have the power to hold public hearings and broad jurisdiction to investigate corruption, not limited to public officials or criminal conduct. According to former Victorian Court of, uh, Court of Appeal judge Stephen Charles, the body could investigate any conduct of any person that affects the impartial exercise of public office. This could include the Victorian Mafia's alleged political connections and Brian Burke's lobbying activities. The proposal was launched on Monday, so we will be keeping a close eye out on the developments of the proposal in the weeks to come. Oh my god, I'm so excited by that idea. Ooh, you just yeah, so interesting. Shut me awake. <laughs> um, 
And lastly, a new national report called The Social Media Mob Being Indigenous Online reveals that more than a third of Indigenous people have experienced direct racism on social media. The report finds that Indigenous people are selective about what they post on social media because they are concerned they would be hit with racism and violence. The report was conducted by Macquarie University and the main findings can be read on SBS and also on our Facebook page. Mm, that was a really interesting article. I highly recommend reading it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't wait to read it. And sorry, did you say it was going to go up on our Facebook it, page? I put it up last night. Okay. <laughs> yes, this is this is what's up. So if you're listening in, you can also um, have a read of that. Thank you so much for finding the article. No so worries. important. Um, I do want to also play a little recording. Uh, there was a protest on the weekend um, for what's going on in Gaza at the moment mm. uh, and the violence that's being perpetrated against Palestinians. And Ayana and I went to the protest and there was a woman who sang... Um, it was so beautiful and it was kind of... I think it was a message to sort of connect us here to the struggle going on there. Mm. Um, and she does explain... Briefly, I caught a little bit of it. She explains a little bit about what the singing is about. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to play that recording now. That normally when I do, I just think all this energy from Melbourne with you guys all the way to Palestine. That's why I'm standing here today. And I want to, before I sing, I want you to do one sentence with me and do it loud. It's in Arabic and it's where it's saying, don't like come close to us, you don't know who you are fighting and we Palestinians just wake up every day to teach life to everybody around the world. That's why I want you to do it with me.
Wow, that's incredible. I forgot how amazing she sounded. Yeah, I mean, that, that recording was just done on my iPhone, so it's a bit fuzzy, but you can really get, you know, you get a sense of yeah. how amazing it was to be there. And when they started clapping and there was, like, audience participation, mm. incredible. And you and I were also talking about how... Um, like how amazing all the women at the protest yes, were. Yeah. You even saw a mother carrying her. Oh, that was one of the speakers. Yeah, she was she was awesome. And then later on, we saw her with a little baby walking down. But um, yeah, there yeah. were so many speakers that we thought, oh, we'd love to get them on Tuesday breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, so These, many strong women. Exactly, and they were also leading the march, and they were also um, at one point um, barricading us from, because um, there was also like a Zionist. Oh my god! What, what, yeah. what, I don't know. Some I think they were um, like a. I don't, all I know is that they were anti-Palestine. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. So they were throwing up a ruckus and just sort of saying, um, "Yeah, it was it was terrible." And I was hoping not to mention it, but in this case I did. But um, yeah, so the women were sort of keeping us safe, linking arms. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and they made it very clear not not to engage because it is it's a bit stressful when you're at a protest and there's a counter protest and mm-hmm. you have two very passionate groups of people kind of butting heads in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very clear that it should be respectful and just to kind of ignore yeah. that that was going on, which mm-hmm. I thought was really good. Yeah. yeah. Mm. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to go to a song now. It's called Crossfire, So Into You by Napalm from her record Needle Paw.
can explain it. I'm so in. We don't even need Sorry. music. We can just have you. Um, <laughs> barely, but I appreciate the support system. Uh, that was Napalm, the beautiful, beautiful Napalm from Sydney. Um, with her song Crossfire slash So Into You. Mm, that was awesome. It was a nice way to start the day. And Georgie, who have we got? We are going to jump right into an interview now with Carly Finley, who is an award-winning writer, speaker and appearance activist. Carly has the rare severe skin condition called ichthyosis. She writes on disability issues for publications including the ABC, Daily Life and SBS. She was named as one of Australia's most influential women in the 2014 Australian Financial Review and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Awards. Hi, Carly. It's such a pleasure to have you on the line this morning. Hello. Thank you for having me. I want to jump right in and ask you a little bit about ableism and intrusive behaviour. In an article you wrote on your website, you discuss a speech you gave for the city of Port Phillips International Women's Day. And you mentioned that a woman was rubbing her hand up and down your arm and essentially being very rude and invading your personal space. I was wondering, yeah. how common are these experiences? Uh, I think they're more common when you have a disability because your body becomes everyone else's property um, for curiosity, for offers of cures and to be fixed, um, for, like I guess, this general kind of concern that it can get really... Um, rude, you know. Mm. Uh, last week, I was in a restaurant on Sunday, yeah, two days ago. I was in a cafe with my husband and we were just having brunch and a man who wasn't even facing me, uh, he had his back to me, um, he came up and offered me a card with some doctor on it and he sort of said, oh, I have a skin condition as well. Um, I know a really good doctor in France and um, normally, normally I'll just say no, thank you. And my my partner was straight onto it. He's like, probably don't, probably haven't, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's it must wear you down when it you know it's something that happens a lot. And and when it sounds like it's kind of framed as concern, but it's this entitlement to you know for people to share their own opinions. Yeah, I think that. Um, like when I when I wrote about when I write about these sorts of things on the internet, um, the response perhaps is more wearing than the um, actual incident, and I think that people see it as concern and they don't see it as the cumulative effect of you know wearing people down. They don't see it as it happens every day. Hmm. Um, you know, for the people that are asking me or being curious, this is probably the first time they've seen someone like me, but. For me, it's certainly not the first time I've experienced this kind of curiosity. Mm. So even when you pointed out people aren't really listening, they're sort of coming back and saying this is about concern. Yeah, yeah, or I'm the one being rude, mm. talking about it or refusing help or whatever. You know, I, you know, at the time that I was at the, um, when I gave the talk at Port Phillip, I had um, talked about medical uh, you know, the medicalization of our body and how sometimes the body, our bodies aren't um, ours anymore. And I talked about media representation and all this stuff and then she still thought that I needed to be scratched. It was very odd. Mm. And even the other day at the, at the cafe, I wasn't in clear need of help. You know, I was just eating like yeah. the other people were. 
And so is body autonomy quite an important part of the conversation concerning disability activism and disability rights? Yeah, I think I think that that's definitely um, something to, that we need to talk about. Um, you know, I can only speak on my experience, but I know that a lot of other people have experienced very similar. Um, when I was younger, and I've written about this and did a performance last year uh, at two writers' festivals, there's a, um, a link to the audio on my blog, um, how when I was young, I was a medical specimen, and that the impact of that can be really, um, you know, can travel into adulthood, even though I haven't had, had that experience since I was about maybe 15. I still think about that a lot and how when I stood in a cold medical room um, having photos taken for places that I didn't know where they'd end up or when doctors spoke to me uh, as though I wasn't there or spoke about me as though I wasn't there um, or you know, laughed at my body or, or I was just made to feel really cold because I couldn't wear many clothes while being a medical specimen. That level of body autonomy uh, was taken away. Um, but then, you know, there, there's other... I've, you know, I've read other people's accounts of this where, you know, they're offered help or they're um, offered to be pushed in a wheelchair when they can um, move themselves or when... Um, you know, the the only kind of touch they feel, and I've definitely experienced this, when the only kind of touch they feel is um, a medicalised touch. Mm, so is that sort of, does that sort of connect with that idea that people can impose ideas about disability onto people living with disabilities that further kind of marginalise them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the idea that we, you know, that we should be cured or we should be fixed or... You know, the amount of people I have coming up to me, offering me, you know, ideas like, you know, have you tried microdermabrasion or have you tried, um, a, you know, medical cannabis or lots of different things. And I think the main default is that disability is such tragedy and that my life or other people's lives must be so bad that we can't possibly live like this. So we do need to have a cure or, um, or to be fixed in some way. And that is their projection. That's someone mm. else's projection of how they feel around disability mm. um, put onto us. And so you were talking before a little bit about um, being medicalised. Do you think there needs mm-hmm. to be more training with people who are health professionals in terms of how to communicate with um, people and how to have conversations where you don't kind of just look at someone as a as a problem or as something that yeah. needs to be treated, someone that yeah, needs to be definitely. treated? Um, in my, like, I, I feel as I've grown and um, written more about this and become more self-aware, um, my career has meant that I've moved from patient as, as solely as a patient to now a patient and an educator. So I do some work with um, Melbourne Uni and the Royal Melbourne Hospital in talking to dermatologists or young doctors around um you know, the way they can communicate. Uh, I did a talk last year, actually, around genetics, and um, it was great. I really liked doing um, talks at Melbourne Uni, but this one was particularly around genetics and visible difference, which I hadn't given before. And afterwards, you know, I talked all about boundaries and privacy and talking to people as though we're human. And a woman asked me a really personal question um, and this is a student and she'd never met me before 
And then she was asking me about genetic selection and abortion. And I said, you know, we've never met before and you're asking me this. And I didn't go into it too much, but I said I had written a bit about it before and she can read about it on my blog. And the doctors that were in charge of the lecture said they've never kind of seen that level of intrusiveness in action before right? until they'd seen me be faced with this really personal question. Yeah, and it really justifies you know, the reason why you're there, um, teaching people about these issues. And that's fantastic that you've, um, that you've done that, that you've gone into that space and kind of, um, you know, educated people about these ideas of boundaries and privacy. It's so important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes when, when I'm in hospital, most of the time when I go to hospital, I'm not sick. I'm just there to have a checkup or, um, you know, to discuss, to get a prescription. And then sometimes I am sick. And when I am sick, I don't want to have to go through my whole medical history from when I was born because a doctor wants to know that or feels the need to know that. I just want to be there treated for the thing that I'm there for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And in terms of addressing uh, addressing some of these concerns, Mm -hmm. um, how do you think that language in the media and society needs to change? Uh, Well, I think that language needs to start with, um, you know, like, you know, the ableist language that people use, so the R word and, and things like that, um, and also the way disabled people are portrayed in the media, I think that needs to start both with how the government talks about disabled people. Um, you know, there's a little big narrative of how disabled people are leaners and burdens and uh, all of those sorts of things, um, which then trickles down to the media, which then trickles down to the general public. So if the general public... Um, perceive disability in a way they um, receive it through the media, then it's no wonder they've got such a negative view of disabled people. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that that, that that needs to happen. I know on the weekend, um, Dylan Alcott, the Olympian, Paralympian, he ran the first um, music festival for people with disability, and that's a really great thing. I think that, you know, once we uh, include more people, invite more people into spaces um, and share those spaces with um, disabled people, then perhaps it will normalise it a little bit and the narrative will change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you see feminism and disability activism as connected? Uh, Yeah, I think that, um, well, I think that it's really important in feminism to include disabled people um, because we're so often forgotten. And I know when I do... um, talks or when I've been asked to do talks sometimes I've been asked to um, do it at last minute because they've forgotten the disabled um, person on a panel or you know disability is often the forgotten aspect of diversity and it's really important that feminism is intersectional that we look at all um, types of diverse backgrounds when talking about that Um, and it's really important to include disabled voices in the feminist space. Mm. Uh, do you think currently there's a bit of work to go there in terms of, you know, as opposed to being an afterthought, as you've, as, yeah. as you've pointed out? Yeah, absolutely. I think I just read um, that the, well, I know that the women's marches haven't always been very accessible to all types of bodies, but I read that the March for Our Lives in America, for example, wasn't, I know that's not quite a feminist issue, but um, certainly it was inclusive and intersectional, but people were writing that it wasn't quite inclusive um 
yeah, I, I see it all the time, especially in online spaces, in the online uh, forums, you know, on Facebook, Facebook groups about feminism, disability is often forgotten about, and it's talked about very othered, and sometimes we're expected to suppress our um, our identity because mm. people don't feel that disability is a part of identity. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's interesting that idea with intersectional feminism how it can often be a buzzword and people just throw in different um, sort of different communities and different groups, but it's sort of this, you wonder, like, is it just a tokenistic addition? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a danger of that happening, but I also think that people just need to kind of forget their own prejudices and, and thoughts around disability and listen to mm-hmm. and invite actually disabled people to speak and write and, right. and talk about Issues. Yeah, so so how important is that? How important is centering the voices of people with disabilities? Yeah, uh, it's, it's really it's really important because so often uh, when disability issues are in the media, um, you know, for example, the NDIS, um, there aren't actual disabled people talking about it and the NDIS is affecting actually disabled people, but instead they'll get a policy maker or a parent or a doctor or a government worker talk about it yet they're not asking the people that are the ones that are affected um i think actually there's um you know when people try to talk out around uh, not being hurt it can get even worse you know where people are um erased or silent that can be really tricky as well so i think the you know the main thing to do is just step back and um acknowledge your privilege if you're a non-disabled person and just listen and and think about how you would like to see disabled people represented more in the media mm. society. Yeah. Mm. It seems like a no-brainer, really, when you put it like that. It's disappointing that that's still the case, that they're not consulting people, with people who actually live with disabilities about these policies. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that that happens with a lot of marginalised yeah. groups, so, you know, it happened recently on one of those morning programs where Aboriginal children mm-hmm. were discussed without any yeah. people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you suggest to our listeners um, any other activists in your community that we could learn from? Yeah, there's heaps of disabled people out there that are doing really great things. Um, I think starting with Twitter is a really good place. Um, you know, go on Twitter and find disabled people. There's a really great... Um, Facebook group called the Disability Visibility Project um, and anyone can join that on Facebook and also um, they've got a Twitter account. Um, Jess Walton is great. She writes around um, disability and she's a, um, a children's book author as well. Um, there's also Jack Jackie Brown, there's Elle Gibbs, there's Michelle Roger, um, Cass Duncan, there's Mel- uh, There's Quipping, the Quipping's Troop in Melbourne which are great. Um, they perform around disability, identity and pride. Um, so you can look quickings up on Facebook. Uh, there is Jared Maranon, there's Alice Wong, there's so many people. Um, so I think Twitter is a really great place to start and I often tweet um, other disabled activist work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carly. There's, um, oh, also, if listeners would like to get in touch with you or read or listen to more of your work, how can they do this? 
yeah, I write at carlysinlay.com.au and I'm on Facebook at Carly Sinlay and Twitter and Instagram, the same. Um, and I'm also writing a book and it will be around appearance diversity and disability issues and that is out early next year. Oh, and course, great. Hello. I'm yep. really looking forward to, to reading that. Um, there's so much. Thank you so that- much. No worries. There's so much that we could discuss on this topic, and I'd really love to have you join us again in the future. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Carly. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Back at Tuesday Breakfast, if you're just tuning in, we just had a really interesting interview with Carly Finlay, who is a disability activist and writer, which you can check out on our podcast if you like. Um, but we've also got some really great stuff coming up. I believe an interview with Ahmed Hassan, who is the founder and director of Youth Activating Youth. But in the meantime, oh, just a quick weather update. It's 24.4 degrees and it's going to be 29 degrees today, so a rather warm one. I'm going to play a track now that I heard, <laughs> Ayan's going to laugh at me, I heard Sisters Eye <laughs> playing this last week. Yes, <laughs> love that, love that, woman supporting woman, yes. Um, it's by a group called Lemon Sonko and the African Intelligence, and this song is called Mama Africa. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander 
and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears Being photographed How sad, how tragic But it doesn't have to be that way On the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm On 3CR and if you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Jan, George and Lauren. And on the line we have Ahmed Hassan. Ahmed Hassan is the director and one of the founders of the outreach group Youth Activating Youth, which is an organization that helps disadvantaged multicultural young people navigate their way through life. Thanks for joining us, Ahmed. So, Ahmed, you, as we mentioned in the bio, you are one of the directors and founders of the Outreach Group. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Youth Activating Youth? Um, thank you for having me today, firstly. Um, secondly, um, so Youth Activating Youth is a multicultural organisation that helps disadvantaged youth. Um, what we do is try to help them through um, key components such as health and wellbeing, education and training and community participation. Um, my role is basically as director and co-founder of, uh, of the organisation is basically I've set myself a, a very uh, difficult task of how do we inspire the next uh, generation of leaders um, and how do we help young people who are facing those barriers you know, because we have a lot of young people who've got potential but don't necessarily have the opportunity. And, and how do we, how do we bridge that gap between, you know, the, uh, having potential and opportunity? So my work's been a bit difficult and, and, and one that's very challenging at this point in time because we do see different challenges on a daily basis. But it's one that I look forward to every morning when I go to work and, and, and try to assist young people. I mean, that sounds that sounds amazing, and we do appreciate you taking on that role. Um, what prompted you to get involved in this organisation and in the space generally? Um, the space, obviously, yeah, community, basically, it's a, it's a massive space where a lot of things um, occur in terms of, you know, there's different barriers, there's different underlying issues with, you know, many communities and many migrants that, that obviously migrate to this country. And, you know, obviously, coming from a multicultural background, I myself, you know, came through some of the difficulties, not necessarily whether, you know, did they have me on a life-changing experience, but there were issues that I could see, you know, and, and you know, young people who come from low socioeconomic backgrounds and, and there's, you know, young people who are disengaged, how do we engage them, especially with, you know, crime, you know, young people engaging in antisocial behaviour, crime, and, and obviously it's small cohorts, but how do we engage them, how do we fix the high unemployment rate, how do we get young people completing school rather than leaving, you know, um, earlier than, than year 11 and 10. So there were certain issues that you could see that were building, and, and I thought, you know what, um, 
if I can get into the space and, and do some good work with some young people and then build young people's capacity that they can further build uh, other young people's capacity, then the work is going to continue ongoing. So how do we continue the good work? So that's what I, what I really motivated me to get, get on it. Mm, it sounds like the issue is multifaceted and what you're trying to do is make it sustainable. So it's not so much like a bandage solution, but something that you know once, you're, once you've moved on, someone else can take the mantle and just, um, yeah, go ahead and, and continue Absolutely. the good work. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and, and that's what we place in our young people, and um, and, and that's why I have con- uh, continual support of the young people because when you give them a platform to do something for themselves and to do something for other young people, I, I, I believe it is very powerful because um, you're saying to the person, look, I'll support you, you lead the project, or you lead uh, you lead us with what's the next initiative that will help young people. So putting um, the initiative and the responsibility in the young people's hands—that—that that is where you know that's where you should be going. The responsibility, not on the elders, not at youth workers, but the young people themselves. Mm. Um, Ahmed, it's Lauren here. I just wanted to ask: um, in a recent article with the Age discussing police brutality against, um, directly quoting from the article, a Sudanese-born Melbourne man. Um, you mentioned that you have a lot of young African people telling you that um, this is nothing new, happens all the time, um, and that was quite heartbreaking to read. Um, we also read that you're the leader of a Victoria Police Task Force aimed at tackling crime by young African Australians. So based on your experience, um, all of those different things, do you think that there's a way to fix this divide between the police and the Australian African community, and where would we even start? Well, um, look, not all police are bad. We do have, you know, some officers that are that are not following the, the, the rules with, with, while being a police officer. But um, again, you know, I think um, we, should, we should always be, you know, mindful that police do a great job in the community, keeping us safe. You know, putting on a bulletproof vest every day of the week they go to work. Not many of us do that. Um, and 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 you know, the work that they're doing is, is important. You know, to work with the police hand in hand is important, and and that's why um, the task force was established. The task force was established to ease the tensions between, you know, police and the community, and especially African youth. And how do we how do we look at, um, you know, getting young Africans into the force? So what the, the task force is there to, you know, help the police understand how to work with the community, how to understand the elders, how to understand the young people. How to understand the middle-aged, you know, uh, people in the, in the community, and we're in a great position, with, you know, establishing the task force and, you know, getting all these other members in. And it's a very, you know, there's about 22 members within that task force, you know, and I'm the youngest of them, people, you know, people that are in the task force. But what we have is such a diverse group that can help Victoria Police in the coming months understand this issue, so they can better deal with it. And, look, I don't blame the Victoria Police as an organisation. I think it's what we need to do is continue the cultural training, continue the, the, the good work that, that's been already done and, and try to limit the bad um, you know, work that you know, some officers may be doing. And, 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 again, it goes for some young people in the community are causing trouble. Some, some officers, you know, did the wrong thing. Again, mm. everybody should take responsibility where it needs to do.
So that's interesting that you mention um, something like cultural training and that sort of thing. So do you think, um, are you trying to tackle what you see as perhaps like a racist element to Victoria Police or something like that? Well, I don't think it's a racist element. Victoria Police is very, is becoming very diverse. And, and you know, I am at a, at a lot of events and, and you see many officers from, you know, many different cultures and, and you've got different, you know, liaison teams and, and all. So Victoria Police is actually becoming a very diverse organisation, you know, and credit to them because they're, they're continuously coming within the community at grassroots level to look for people to recruit to join the force. And what we're trying to do is, is, is how do we how do we better help them? How do we better, you know, structure young people to actually join the force, to be actually, you mm-hmm. know, to be fully fit, to, to fit the criteria of FICPOP. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. So we've been working, you know, how do we get, you know, an African police officer, you know, a couple more. And then, then after that, we'll, 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 I think we'll have a better understanding. Yeah. I mean, I guess in this context, you know, if we're looking at things like Flemington Kensington Legal Services um, research that they're doing and all of these issues around IBAC um, not responding in the same way to claims of racial vilification and harassment as other kinds of police harassment, I guess, um, perhaps to play a bit of the devil's advocate here, some people might say that we don't really have the time to wait for the police force um, to become culturally representative and perhaps um, some more anti-racist and, and multicultural training needs to be happening um, do you think that that will be effective if that's the path that's taken or do you think that there needs to be some kind of structural change outside of just hiring more African police officers? Like, how do you see, if, if people were to say that this is actually an urgent issue? Well, well, one thing I can say is look, that there are, you know, and young people have been saying, you know, we've been harassed by police and we've been, you know, brutally beaten by police officers, you know, while held in custody and, and, and all. So what we're trying to do is how do we not make that happen? And and we have a very great uh, Victoria Police at the very top level. You know, they're very great. And and what I'm hoping is is the one on uh, the, the the officers at the top, you know, the, the chief commissioner and the commissioners and the commanders, that they can whatever they are preaching. I hope it comes all the way to the junior, um, you know, police officers. But I understand the community's concern about you know having. You know, the people that are meant to be protecting you to be, you know, to be brutally beating you is not something that's okay and it's not something that, you know, anybody will, will be able to justify. So what we're trying to do is, yes, increase the cultural training, yes, increase the cultural understanding of communities, yes, increase, you know, the knowledge between the communities, yes, how do we get young officers to go to cultural events, how do we get young officers to, to go to schools and, and engage with young people? How do we get officers to, you know, speak to young people and become more friendly and, and, and have friendly games over sports or, you know, breaking bread with them or, or doing various other mm. activities to, to break those barriers that are, that, that are there, you know? Yeah. So, and we do that. We continuously do that, you know, whether it be through, you know, Ramadan time, whether it be through sports festivals, whether it be, you know, mm. various activities throughout the year. But what we do is we try to break those barriers, and, and it's great. But again, it, it, it's a big organisation, and it's got a lot of members. But it's something that it's not acceptable going forward. Yeah. Um, and what else can we do as a community to support young people? Well, 
young people obviously need a lot of support, and we have to be very careful when they say young people because if we criticise them as a community and and, and and what we need is a collective approach to, to assisting young people. We don't need the society to look down on, on these young people. Some of these young people have committed crime once, twice, three times, but I still give them a chance in my books because they are deserving of a chance. They're still young. They're under the ages of 18. They need you know, support services. They need rehabilitation services. You know, Not even before we get to education and employment, these young people need to be rehabilitated. They need you know, ongoing services to actually assist them to slowly get back into school, to slowly to seek employment after that, to get back into sporting activities, be engaged meaningfully. So what we need to look at is how do we engage these young people in a meaningful manner? What, what, are, the, what are the outcomes when we engage them? What are they gonna, going to be achieving? So that's how I actually do um, when, when, when developing a program or being involved in an activity. I look at the outcomes. What is that young person going to live with rather than just engaging the young person? Mm. And for any of our listeners who are from the community and um, are interested in youth activating youth, how can they get involved? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's various ways to get involved. Um, Look, um, our organisation is, is very diverse. It, it's a youth-led organisation, so it's youth for youth. Um, please send me an email, send me a message us on Facebook, uh, you know, Twitter, whatever. We've got mm. Instagram, and happy to have you as a as a volunteer, as a, as a member of the organisation, participating in, in the organisation. We've got very good reach, so yeah, there's yeah. various ways to get involved. That sounds excellent, and we will put. Um, the information about Youth Activating Youth, um, your the Facebook page, on our social media handles. Um, so we do appreciate you taking the time out to um, put some context into what sounds like a very nuisanced conversation. So thank you, Ahmed. Thank you. And if you're just tuning in, you just heard from Ahmed Hassan. Ahmed Hassan is the director and one of the founders of the outreach group Youth Activating Youth which is an organisation that helps disadvantaged multicultural young people navigate their way through life. And we're going to go to a track now. If you were listening 10 minutes ago, you might have heard me play a song, but it was actually just a 20-second clip of the track. So that was just a little teaser. Now we're going to play the actual song. Um, it's by Lemon Sonko and the African Intelligence. They were actually in Melbourne just last week. I think they played at the Evelyn. Um, I didn't see it, but I just heard them on the radio last week, and they were incredible. They were being interviewed as well, so they were talking about their music and... It, they explore a lot of ideas around equality and inclusion, and they are an Afrobeat, jazz, and funk uh, group. So I'm going to play one of their songs now, which is called Mama Africa.
That was Lemin Sonko and the African Intelligence with Mama Africa. Such a great track. Yes, and we do appreciate you always coming through with incredible, incredible hits. And just, I don't want to use the word diverse, but I feel like you go beyond. <laughs> You're like international, like world music, so we do appreciate Oh, thanks, Ayan. You're doing the work. It's all Sister's Eye. Most of the music I get that's new is yes. just from Sister's Eye. Big up, Sister's Eye. And when is she on? What She's day? on every morning. Except for when she doesn't turn up, and I'm very sad those days. On but PBS, she's supposed yeah. to be on every morning at PBS for the breakfast show, so from 6 o'clock. Yeah. Breakfast Bre- Yes, with so, Milo. Yeah, so when you're not listening to us on Tuesdays, the other days we give you permission to listen to her. Yep, <laughs> you're allowed. <laughs> so I'm going to launch into some community announcements now. Um, there's going to be a special session on politics and menstruation and the pervasiveness of the menstrual taboo with Karen Pickering next Thursday, 12th of April, 6.30 to 8pm at the Alderman, Ligon Street in East Brunswick. There's a few events coming up with WIRE in the next couple of months. So WIRE is an organisation that I'm actually involved with. It stands for Women's Information and Referral Exchange. And they do some incredible events um, to support people. Uh, That's a lot to do with separation and family violence and intervention orders. So there's a few of those coming up. The first is on the 17th of April. It's from 1 to 3.30 p.m. It's on intervention orders, what to expect when applying for one. So it's a discussion and Q&A session. So if you're sort of in the midst of some situation at the moment and you want to know more about intervention orders and how you can apply for one, this would be a great event to attend. So you can uh, book online or you can call WIRE and organise to go to that event. The other event that they're holding is on May the 21st. It's from 1.30 to 3 o'clock and it's called From Separation to Settlement. So they'll have a family lawyer and mediator, Alyssa Turco, to provide information and examine the pros and cons of following a dispute resolution for divorce and separation. So another really interesting one to attend if you need more information about a particular situation that you're in. Uh, the next event is a peace march um, concerning violence against women on April 14th, which will be held in Glen Waverley, so at the corner of Springvale and Waverley Road. And it's being organised by the Mental Health Foundation Australia and Korean Society of Australia and other community groups. So that one will start at 9.30am and go to 12.30 and they're asking for a donation or a booking of $5. With uh, overwhelming... um, Superiority in air power and heavy weapons, Turkey has occupied a friend, so there's going to be an emergency meeting on that issue on Friday the 20th of April at 6.30pm in the Multicultural Hub in the city, which is opposite Vic Markets. So the meeting will discuss what we can do in the next few weeks and months to raise the issue in the public eye and win support for this Inspiring People's Power project. And that's all that I have for news head, uh, sorry, community announcements today. Yes, and I can't, we cannot wait to check out all the events that you've listed. And big shout out to Wire. Yeah. Wire, that's how you and I met. Yeah, back in the training. Yeah, two we years did ago. like a telephone training. <laughs> and yeah, and, and we hit it off. And they do such incredible work. Yeah. Their training is just so like rigorous and it's very thoughtful and it really like I took away a lot of information that I apply into my own personal life so we do appreciate you Wire um, 
Uh, there's actually a couple. I wanted to add yeah, one more um, community announcement for Melbourne, which is the Feminist Writers Festival, which is coming up um, May 25th to 27th. But I mention it now because tickets are on sale and I feel like everything is going to sell out really quickly. So if you like words, feminism, strong women talking about awesome things. I like things, words and yeah, feminism. It's a very, it's a very us festival. Um, All right. But feministwritersfestival.com and I'm just like dying over the program. So um, it's like a little bit expensive, but if you, um, yeah, if you want to make an investment... This is the time. Tuesday breakfast excursion. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and we, if we go, we'll try and record everything mm-hmm. that we can. So um, we'll play it on here. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, I just read about this. Somebody sent me a link yesterday to it. Um, so April 8th to 14th. So we are in the midst of anti-street harassment week, international anti-street harassment week, no less. And so this is a week um, that is a program of an organization in America called Stop Street Harassment. Um, and they are taking this week as an opportunity to collectively raise awareness that street harassment happens and it's not okay. Um, and this is their eighth annual week of awareness. Um, and so if you go to meetusonthestreet.org, you'll see that actually this has become a global movement and there are people from all around the world. It's pretty phenomenal. Wow. They have actions in Afghanistan, Thailand, um, like all across the world, women um, and allies taking anti-street harassment actions and trying to raise awareness about why things like catcalls, sexist comments, um, and all the way up to stalking and assault. But gender-based street harassment makes public places unfriendly and even scary for a lot of girls, women, and LGBTQI people um, and limits their access to public spaces. So if this is an issue that you feel strongly about, meet us on the street.org and get involved. So is it is there an event that they're holding or is it's it just an, an awareness kind it's of It's more of an awareness-raising campaign, yep. but they do encourage people to hold events in their cities right. um, and join so it becomes a bit of an international solidarity. Awesome, movement. I have to check that out. Thanks, yes. Lauren. Um, and now we are going to go to an interview um, with Dr. Chris Burke, who is the Strategic Program Director of the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. Good morning, Lauren. So why was the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association formed and what does it do? Can you kick us off with that? Of course. Uh, the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association has been around for over 70 years. Um, it was formed in 1946 to enable public hospitals across the country to get together and advocate for a sustainable health system, a health system that was effective and where all Australians had equitable access to healthcare. Fantastic. And so um, in a few public statements recently in your role as Strategic Program Director of the AHHA, you've stated your support for improvements in cultural safety in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander healthcare. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Of course. Uh, One of the great pieces of leadership that our nurses uh, across Australia have undertaken recently is to incorporate in their national code of conduct a requirement to deliver culturally safe care. And this is not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but for all culturally diverse people across our community. And we have a very culturally diverse community in Australia. Cultural safety is particularly important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because we know the health outcomes for Aboriginal people when they turn up to hospital are much less than it is for the non-Indigenous community. I mean, for instance, in a project that I'm working on around 
uh, cardiac care, people who turn up to hospital after they've had a heart attack, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are 30% less likely to get the care that they need when they turn up to hospital. So we know that there are significant issues around delivering care which is appropriate, uh, not just in hospitals, but in all healthcare settings, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I think we should all be very proud of the nurses uh, who are leading the way to incorporate uh, cultural safety as part of their code of practice. Mm. So this is a nurse-led movement? Certainly, and uh, I think uh, we should be very proud of what they're doing there. But of course, this is not just about individual practitioners and how they interact with patients when they come in to see them, but it also starts to make us be able to reflect upon our health system, uh, the way hospitals and healthcare organisations are established, their policies, are they taking account of other people and are they delivering poorer outcomes for other people and what can be done about that? Mm. And quite clearly in Aboriginal health there's a whole range of uh, things that we know from the literature that can actually be done and the most obvious one uh, is developing partnerships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and organisations where there's leadership, where there's education uh, and the opportunity for indeed the clinicians to uh, develop uh, uh, alliances and and reflect on their work. Of course, the reduction of institutional and individual races in hospitals is incredibly important. And one of the key things is having more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working in healthcare as doctors, nurses, health workers, Indigenous liaison officers and in allied health. Mm. And so is that is that what you mean when you discuss cultural safety, those institutional and then also individual changes? The code of conduct for the nurses particularly relates to individual practice, mm-hmm. but cultural safety is a, is a much broader term than that, I think. It really sort of encompasses a range of other issues which we can talk about in that space. Mm. And so in terms of um, specific examples of, for example, at a health clinic, um, to improve cultural safety within yeah, within a clinic, um, where would you start? Like, how, What would this look like? Would it be about hiring staff with different cultural backgrounds? Or Okay. Uh, last week I was up at Mount Isa, um, which is a little bit different to Melbourne, but uh, it'll give you some of the ideas of things that people were talking about there. And I was running a, I was part of a training workshop for staff from Mount Isa Hospital and also their uh, uh, partner organisations to, as I said, get better cardiac care outcomes for Aboriginal people when they turn up with a heart attack. And when we started talking about this stuff in the workshop, they started talking about things like uh, there was a... Um, problem with uh, specialists coming in, visiting specialists who didn't have any cultural understanding, um, problems with uh, transport issues, uh, problems with um, gender uh, issues with some people, mm-hmm. uh, problems with uh, different cultural groups because it's a very diverse community, just like Melbourne, and uh, problems with sort of... Uh, if, like unreliable technology in remote areas. But uh, then we started to look at together working how we can overcome some of these issues to deliver better care. And what the people in the room started talking about is about having reflective practice and case reviews where people get together and talk about 
the care they've provided to someone, for an Aboriginal patient, and how it could have been better. About working with the Indigenous liaison officers to get them as part of the discharge planning team so that when someone leaves hospital, there's a plan uh, in place to make sure that they get the care back in the community mm. when they go back home uh, with their GP or uh, with their Aboriginal medical service. Yeah, I like that's, yeah, that's a really interesting idea that stopping and reflecting on your practice and, and having on-the-job training and reflection as you go, I think that's a really, yeah, that's probably not something that people would admit that they need a lot of the time, but in fact um, makes a lot of sense. Well, I've been a clinician for 35 years, <laughs> and uh, for me, the opportunity after working with someone to have a think about how you managed it, how well it went, and whether you could have done better, or sometimes to celebrate how well you did, is uh, one, of the, one of the joys of practice. Mm. It, it's, it's an opportunity to learn every time you're working with a patient. Mm. And so I, um, I was reading that there are some new national health stand ta- standard targets being made for Indigenous Australians. Um, it looks like a federal initiative. What are these all about, and will cultural safety be included in them in any way? Well, there is, of course, the uh, close the gap refresh going on at the moment where the government or the federal government is reflecting upon the achievements and sometimes lack of success of closing the gap over the last 10 years and looking to develop some new ideas about what can be done there. I think probably one of the key things to be uh, recognised and to be dealt with is uh, what's commonly termed institutional racism mm-hmm. uh, and this is different to interpersonal racism. Interpersonal racism is pretty easy to recognise it's in your face, uh, it's someone uh, treating you uh, badly or differently because of your race that's quite easy to see institutional racism is something different and that's where an institution is set up by uh, one particular group of people to do whatever they think it should do to provide the benefit to whoever they think it should be. So developed from instance from a non-Indigenous perspective. Mm. And does that work? Well, you have to look at the outcomes. If there are poorer outcomes from an organisation, that's a critical marker for institutional racism. And it's then the opportunity for the organisation to reflect upon that and say, what do we need to do to get better outcomes? Do we need to change our governance structure and look at having uh, people from that particular group who are getting poor outcomes within our governance? Pretty obvious answer is yes, because your your structure is not actually working to deliver equitable outcomes for the whole community. No, that 30% statistic that you mentioned earlier is absolutely shocking. That's awful. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Chris, uh, Dr. Burke. Sorry. Um, You're welcome. Very interesting. Um, and Tuesday Breakfast will be following along this idea of cultural safety in Indigenous healthcare. I look forward to talking again. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. And that was Dr. Chris Burke, who's the Strategic Program Director of the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. Stay tuned, because in a minute we'll be crossing live to Brisbane, where the Stolen Wealth Games is happening, to discuss what is going on up there with a member of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! 
Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. And you're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. And we are joined on the line now by um, a NAM-based activist and writer named Nish Morris, who is up at the Stolen Wealth Games with some members of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Good morning, Nish. Good morning. How's it going up there? Yeah, it's going well. Right now we are outside the sunrise set. You can probably hear some chanting in the background, but we've got some banners. Up here, so if any of your listeners want to flick on sunrise in the background, you might be able to see some of some of what's going on. So they haven't blocked the uh, blocked the walls like last time. Well, all no, they haven't. I don't think they can because they're live crossing with the beach as a background, so I don't have that full studio ah, here. So excellent. I think we'll put them out this time. <laughs> all right, wonderful. And you're there with Philip Murray from the Warriors of the Aboriginal yes. Resistance. Yes, Phil is here next to me. Fantastic. So, Phil, are you there? Oh, sorry, I'll cross the fill in like a minute or two if that's okay. We don't have it on speaker. Ah, not a problem at all. Okay, yep. so what's been happening over the last few days then, prior to this sunrise protest? Um, there's been actions every day. I might let Phil give you a rundown of the actions in a second. There's probably just a couple of things I want to get across. Sure. It's, been re- it's been really well run out up here, and there's been a really huge effort by the Blackfellas to run a really significant campsite where everyone's been fed, um, there's been water running the whole time. There's really, really high expenses. So what I guess I wanted to do is a bit of a call out for, and if you're happy to, we'll put it up on uh, Tuesday breakfast social media accounts afterwards, a uh, donation account to fund it because we're really chewing through Ward's money here and obviously Ward's do a lot of great work. Yeah. And the other thing I just wanted to quickly touch on was um, the fact that we had such a great turnout in, um, for Invasion Day. We had up to 60,000 people there. There's probably been... I would say 10 to 15 people from Melbourne coming through here. So obviously I know that a lot of people are going to have financial constraints or can't get up for whatever reason, but it really would be great to see more people who we know are supporters 
get involved with this sort of stuff. So they're basically just, I guess, this call out to um, other settlers I wanted to make. And then for all the actions and what's been happening, I'll give yeah. you a better, much better informed First Nations perspective and pass on the bill now. Okay, great. Thanks, Nish. Perfect. Here we go. Good morning, Phil. How are you going? Yama. Yes, beautiful morning. Yeah, doing great. I've had no sleep doing camp security for the whole night, but uh, feeling fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Um, and so do you want to just give us a bit of a rundown about um, what's been happening over the last few days, the kind of actions that war has been involved in? Oh, we can see you on sunrise, yeah. by the way. This is great. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. You can see us on sunrise. That's yeah. amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've had, um, had a few actions. Like, um, we stopped the Queen's baton relay um, right outside of our, um, our camp freedom there at, um, at the, the spit at Fort Beach. Um, we had an action outside of the um, opening ceremony, a, um, a, a bit of a rally there, and uh, three people actually arrested at that rally mm. um, last week. And then we had um, uh, oh, gosh, I'm to um, we had a, um, a people's march through Broadbeach on um, Saturday through the main uh, through Surfers Rather, through the main wall at Surfers Paradise. Um, we have done flyering outside some of the major event finals at the for um yeah on checking out some banners and flyers some of the major event finals um at the big stadiums here Fantastic. um we got a lot more of those those sorts of actions as well as i guess some things that we probably don't want to talk too much about on the radio of course as well of course yeah um there's lots of i saw lots of footage of um some silent pro- protests outside some churches and that sort of thing on sunday as well uh yes to be really yes. effective I, yeah yep and um yeah, there was um, yeah, the silent protest outside the Anglican Catholic Church on on Sunday um, Sunday morning yeah. as well, which is um, I don't know, it's a great opportunity to engage with, I guess, regular church going people who were um, actually pretty receptive to hearing about what we were the message we were getting across. That's awesome, and um, and what are you hoping to to achieve, I guess, by going up doing the Stolen Wealth Games and all of that? Like, in terms of tangible outcomes, are you hoping to raise awareness yeah. or? Um. Well, I guess that um, for us, we see the, the existence of the Commonwealth and the existence of things like the Commonwealth Games um, in, and of, in and of itself as like an act of colonisation and of warfare against Indigenous peoples and the ongoing invasion and occupation of our, our stolen lands on this continent. And so we see it as important to um, to resist events like Stolen Wealth Games um, and to have a strong, um, I guess, Indigenous resistance presence throughout those. I guess... Um, some of the outcomes we try to achieve, we have already achieved to some extent, having the um, international media uh, presence and attention on Indigenous rights and Indigenous issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we're disrupting the... One of our plans was to, I guess, make it harder for the games to proceed. We've definitely done that in some parts of things like the um, disrupting the Queen's uh, Baton Relay. Um, and I guess um, giving them a bit more of a spark to uh, some of the yeah, you know, um, indigenous communities that are not centred around major cities. We've had a lot of people from Yarrabah and Warabinda and these sorts of places um, at the camp and for taking part in actions. And I guess it's great to see those people um, having the opportunity to have their, their voice heard and show that you know, these are not just issues that affect uh, that are of interest to inner city Aboriginal people, but Aboriginal people all over Australia who are at the camp and participating um, in our actions are. Um, I guess taking on a bit of that, that political spirit and demonstrating that spirit of resistance that Aboriginal people have shown for the last 230 years. 
Yeah, fantastic. And um, and I don't know, obviously you don't want to talk about the rest of the week, but is war planning anything yep. soon that you do want to tell us about? Um, we do have a rally coming up on Thursday night um, with some uh, ref- refugee community, um, community groups, um, including Rohingya refugees and West Papuan uh, refugees, um, outside of one of the, the stadiums. So, um, and so yeah, that's in, in, in Brisbane or in... Uh, in Gold, on the Gold Coast. On the Gold Coast, yeah. Yeah, and um, we, we just have to start daily actions, um, you know, uh, flyering, stickering, um, those kind of things, and I guess a lot of other actions we also encourage um, people to kind of go out and do uh, autonomously as well, um, you know, and with, in terms of spreading the message um, about what we're, yeah, what we're trying to do mm-hmm. with solar wealth actions. Awesome. And so we're going to pop a link up on our um, Tuesday Breakfast media page for fundraising for war, but is there any yep. other way that you would like people to know that they can support um, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance? Yeah, certainly sharing um, most of ourselves and other uh, groups that are involved in organising and um, funding the, the process like the Vision Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy. Um, yeah, like and sharing, depending on those posts, you know, just to increase the, um, the social media reach of, the, of those um, of those posts, especially of our video. Um, and it talks like it's talking to people about you know, why people will say, oh, why are Indigenous people you know, not happy about the Commonwealth Games? Um, in those conversations with people that they that they know, and obviously it'll be great to have more people coming up and participating in the event. Um, it's kind of an an unusual one for us in that like most rallies that we hold, I guess we probably see like maybe eighty percent of the people there being allies and supporters, and here it's basically the reverse. So eighty percent of the people who are there are kind of, uh, Indigenous people, and a lot of them from communities outside of Brisbane um, who have travelled quite a long way to be there, um, and yeah, it would be great to see some more of those allies and supporters um, coming down and, um, and and yeah, supporting us and lending their bodies and um, yeah, their bodies and uh, sorry, lending their their bodies and ideas, I guess, for the, the actions as well. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Phil. We'll let you get back to um, hustling sunrise yeah. and uh, good yeah. luck for the rest of the games. No worries. Thank you. Thanks. Um, We thought we might kick it now to a song called Australia Does Not Exist by Dreaming Now and Pataphysics, a classic Tuesday Breakfast is already dancing. Um, And if you're just tuning in, that was Philip Murray from the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, who's up in Brisbane for the Stolen Wealth Games. Australia Does Not Exist by Dreaming Now and Pataphysics. And um, we have been called in um, from Camp Freedom with another update from Croft, who is on 3CR's Global Intifada program. Morning, Croft. Hello. Hello. How are you going? 
Yeah, pretty good. Not actually at Camp Freedom this morning. The camp's moved down to the beach for a bit. Ah, I hear that you might be on Sunrise. We were just joined yeah. by someone from war. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty nice. Um, yeah, I think we've done a good bit of disruption of the program this morning. Yep, you're everywhere. Um, you're still, all over the TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, there's still a, a good presence on the beach, people chanting and plenty of flags and banners and, yeah. Oh, that's a couple of green and gold banners, whatever, they're kind of pushed to the side. They don't have much to do with what's going on this morning. We're kind of taking the spotlight a bit, so, yeah. And how have you found the last few days? Is there What's the vibe like up there? Yeah, pretty good. There's been a lot of discussions. You know, people able to take some time out in between the demos to do some networking and regrouping between... Because there's people come from all over the country. There's people come from Paris and Kalgoorlie and uh, from Alice Springs and then from up north near the Cairns. And then, you know, there's people from all over here. So yeah. it's been a pretty nice time for everyone to, to meet and to share stories and do that kind of thing as well in between the demos. So. Yeah. That's awesome. And um, yeah. what's being planned for the rest of the week? Do you know? Have you got... I will wait and see you. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll make it back down here again another day. It's pretty successful this morning. Yeah. They oh, seem God. to not be very happy with it, so yeah. Well, that's the goal. And um, yeah. And why are you up there? What's your personal, like, why did you feel compelled to go up? Um, personally, I came up to do some solidarity with the struggle and also to be involved in the kitchen mostly. Oh, but yeah. then also, you know, because I'm doing stuff for 3CR, I put my hand up to do a couple of updates here and there as well. And, yeah, it's nice to be able to share through about what's happening when you're actually on the ground. So Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. We definitely appreciate the call-in. Thanks so much, Croft. Yeah, no worries. Have yeah. a good day. Thanks for answering my call. It was lucky I think I just grabbed it before it rang out. So. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Wow, what a morning to be up um, to be up at... Camp Freedom. It's so exciting to do the live cross and people that are actually like protesting right now and hear like and to listen in the background to what's going on. It's just so I feel really like hyperactive and to be able to watch it as well on like yes because yeah George has her laptop. I'm watching it, but it's been. Are you enjoying sunrise? It's horrible. It's just been like they've shown like for a few minutes they they had that like the panel in the background which is awesome, but since then in the last ten minutes they've just had ads. They had some weird thing promotion for some skinny girl thing. Oh, she's a real housewife of New York. I'm not proud of the fact that I've watched like all the Right. Reasons, hey, we, we all have our secret like It's no Atlanta. Um no, no, it's not nothing like Atlanta. Real <laughs> housewives of Atlanta, which I love but Yes. Oh mm. my god, that's so incredible. Oh yes. Okay, oh, now they're back on. If you're watching TV now, yeah, put on home. Sunrise. They're on, back on. Online? Where can where I can put a link up on our thingy? Okay. On our Facebook page, but um, you can also watch on telly. Yes. Yes. And I think we're pretty much sorry to cut you off, no. Lauren. We're pretty much done for today. I was going to say the same. But yes. what a day it's been. An incredible day. And this episode will be um, turned into a podcast that you can download and listen back as many times as you want. Thanks for joining us.